So during Epiphany this year, we've been looking at the revelation of Christ in Philippians. And this morning, right at the heart of this letter is a vision for a genuine Christian spirituality and a kind of true freedom, but a freedom that is found only in a repentance, in a change of mind or a change of life. And the beginning of this vision is what we just heard in John's writing, that in Jesus, we have the way, the truth, and the life. And that is to say, in this person, in the Messiah, in the Lord Jesus Christ, is something that is meant to say to human beings, this is the way, and this is what truth is, and this is what it means to be human in the image of God. This is what life is. So you'll remember a couple weeks ago, you, you read the, the paragraph that said, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Something in that is the way. And something in that is what is essentially and deeply true about what it is that God's up to on the earth. Something in that is meant to point to us to the real, genuine human life. And then last week, seeing the other side of this coin and the the other half of this vision for Christian spirituality, Paul said of himself, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I might gain Christ and be found in him, to know the power of his resurrection and participate in his sufferings, becoming like him even in his death, for after all, he is the way and the truth and the life. Then Paul says, but I know I haven't already arrived at this goal. I'm not there yet, but there's one thing I do. I press on and I take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. And now we have in verse 15, this transitional sentence that says, all of us then, if you want to look at your passage, verse 15, all of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. Well, what view? What is it that Paul's asking us to hold in our hearts and minds? And I think it goes something like this, given the model of Jesus that we read in chapter two, and then Paul saying, knowing that I haven't arrived, but I press on, He's saying, verse 17, now join together in following my example. Well, Paul, your example of what? Of giving up rights and privileges, anything that one might count to gain in order to serve God and neighbor. Now, I'm aware, beginning with myself and many decades of helping others, that this vision, it's difficult and it's not instinctive for most of us. And I think especially for those in the Western world and maybe particular, particularly Americans, because it seems to work against our notions of freedom and liberty and self-determination. And these things, of course, are our most cherished values. And I'm not in any way putting it down. Like I, I get, at least as an amateur, I get world history. I get the development of the Western world. I get human beings feeling like they needed to throw off powers that were oppressing them. I'm not down on any of that. I'm just saying as it's worked its way, especially into the modern Western world and and into sort of a modern Americana, our most cherished values are liberty, right? And freedom and 
self-actualization and those sorts of things. Well, a friend of mine, uh, Bishop Graham Tomlin, who's Bishop of Kensington in London, uh, last year wrote a book called Bound to be Free, which he, he sent me in the mail a couple of weeks ago, and I, I just finished reading it, and it was great timing because I think it helps us to think through the vision of freedom that works well with the kind of discipleship that we're reading in Philippians. So the first part of Graham's book is in 150 pages or so of kind of intellectual history about this stuff. And I found myself significantly challenged about the kinds of ideas that don't really work very well with Christian discipleship. And that is to say, at least, that if one considers freedom to simply mean the lack of constraints in order to make autonomous choices, if well-being is thought of simply as liberty of thought and feeling and opinion and tastes and pursuits and kind of the creation and preservation of a personal space wherein I can do whatever I want, right? Like we all hear that and go, well, yeah, duh, exactly, <laughs> right? I mean, something like that. I mean, it might not be exactly there, but something like that, right, is somewhere just at the heart of us. But it raises the question, what about the other? What about others, what about something just like loyalty? It's a very simple concept, like just loyalty. Where is loyalty in a worldview that says, no, I'm just creating space for me to do whatever I want? In that sort of a mindset, where is there any notion of being tied to something outside of ourselves? But if we have this view of what liberty and freedom really means is to create a space in which I just wanna make sure you don't in any way impinge upon me, therefore I have to increasingly sort of distance myself from you. In this sort of view, the core moral imperative is to simply be true to one's inner self. And thus all outside sources of knowledge, all outside history, even human nature is viewed with suspicion because nature might impinge upon my desire to create a self. So do you see what I'm saying? Like even big patterns of human history are suspect, not just a parent who might be domineering or a high school coach who was hard on you or something. I mean, yeah, of course it includes all that, but there's much bigger stuff. And this is one reason I think that claims to external truth or reality is in such low esteem today. This is why I think truth claims are seem to be oppressive. Because after all, if I knew the truth, I might have to bend my will and my biases to those facts. You know what I think is really real? I might've said this to you before, but you know what I think is really real? Is that truth is an inestimable gift. And to ever actually know the truth is a great gift. I mean, from the littlest things about what a memo means to hugely important things, we live today knowing that with all the dissembling that normally comes from living out of personhood, the kind of dissembling that it takes to create and preserve personal space and to do that sorts of things, the constant dissembling, twisting, spinning is leaving all of us in a place where to ever know the truth would be amazing. What's this PSA number mean? What's the truth? Are you feeling me here? Truth is actually an enormous gift. And whenever we can find it, it ought to be prized. It's not oppressive, it's freeing. And I think what's true is that throwing off the truth only invites a more harsh taskmaster. Because when one throws off the truth, then we have the need to construct reality ourselves. Good luck with that, right? Todd, good luck with that. Good luck with constructing any meaningful reality. 
And so such an approach really only gives us a freedom from. It has no ability to answer the question, what should I do with my freedom? It doesn't give us a freedom to. It doesn't tell us what direction we should go or how we should associate with others. In other words, do I use people or do I serve them? And so you see, once we're free, we're still left with the biggest decision. What do I love? What do I desire? What are my aims? Okay, good, you're free, right? Okay, we're free. Now, what are we gonna do with it? You know, free in the sense of I have freedom from all constraints, freedom from all restraints. I can now do whatever I want. But I wonder, are we as free as we think we are? I mean, in just little ways, just as, an, as, just as like uh, examples, cameras now capture almost everything we do. Our electronic footprint is everywhere. Plus, in our relational and consumer choices, we harm each other in creation every day. Now ask yourself, are we free to stop? Or are we bound by unseen forces at the intersection of the market and our own disordered desires? It would do us well this morning, I think, to wonder this. Is it possible that internal controls, the internal controls of my desires, my wants, the present shape of my will, is it possible that these internal controls are more powerful than the external ones we thought we threw off? So no more monarchy, no more uh, religion, right? Uh, no more oppressive political systems, right? Humanity's been trying to throw this uh, stuff off now for hundreds of years. And so, okay, we've successfully thrown it off, but is it possible that we're actually more bound up by our internal stuff than we ever were from external things. For some of us, doing what we want is precisely our bondage. But there's a different vision of freedom, and this is the vision of Jesus in the kingdom of God. So for instance, Luke 4, Jesus says of himself, God has sent me to proclaim freedom to those who are imprisoned. In John, it says that the truth, Jesus, the Son of Man, will make you free. Paul in Romans uses the language of bondage and freedom many, many times, picturing us as being slaves to sin, but having been set free by Christ. In Galatians, Paul says that it's Christ who sets us free from this present evil age. And you may not have ever thought of this in this context, but I would invite you to consider it this morning, the famous phrase in 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul says, if I don't have love, I am not a person. I'm nothing. Now you see how that just completely twists around freedom for me to create personal space to be myself to heck with you. Paul says, no, if I don't will the good of others, if I don't see that essential to my humanity is the good of others, I actually am nothing. Now, you know, one can say, well, Paul's exaggerating or something, and precisely so, but he, I mean, maybe so. But even if he is exaggerating, he's trying to say something. Even if he's using, you know, exaggeration as a rhetorical or literary technique, he, he's still trying to say something. And I think that something alerts us to the notion that we are nothing without some sort of connection to the other. One philosopher that uh, Graham quotes in his book said this, our ability to choose well in the moment is determined by the quality of our habitual objects of attention. I, I know that's a lot of big words and, you know, like hard to hear in public, but it's so important. I just want you to try to think about this. Our ability to choose well in the moment is determined by the quality of our habitual objects of attention. Thus, we need to learn to pay attention in the right direction, he says. And I find this so helpful that what we might say then is something like this, that attention animated by desire 
is the foundation of spiritual formation. Say it again. That which you give attention to, that which I give attention to, which does not arise out of the blue, it arises precisely out of our current set of affections, our current heart, our current will. That desire then, that set of desires, animates our attention. And what we habitually give our attention to is what makes us who we are. And so what we're trying to do in spiritual formation is get to the place where we see the good so clearly and we value it so deeply and we desire it so much that the right choice or the right path is obvious. So in that sense, like a toy, we're kind of wound up and sprung forth into action by cultivating the desire for good. And so when Paul gets to the end of his letter in Galatians, he says to them, use your freedom, I remember, use your freedom to serve others. Use your freedom to bear one another's burdens, he says. And in so doing, you'll be fulfilling the law of Christ. Again, we just can't get into all this, but for Paul to say something, to alert his readers to Torah, is to alert them to that which God was using to shepherd his people into being who he intended them to be. And so you would not expect to see law and Christ, you know, together modified like that. But think of it this way. As you use your freedom to serve others and bear one another's burdens, you will be discovering that which is the way, the truth, and the life. Torah, the way. Torah, the truth. Torah, the guidance to life. And as you use your freedom to serve one another and bear one another's burdens, then you're not only fulfilling a law, but you're living into humanity as God intended. This is what Paul means in 1 Corinthians 9, where you remember that famous passage about becoming all things to all men. Well, it begins with Paul saying, I've given up my rights as an apostle. I don't, that's not something I have to cling to, right? We just read that in, in the earliest part of this chapter. This isn't something I have to cling to. In the same way Jesus didn't have to cling to things, I don't have to cling to my rights as an apostle. On the contrary, he says, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. And if you look at verse 18 in our text this morning, this is what I think gets to this notion of tears. His tears are spurred on by an essential otherliness, right? Remember that passage in Romans 9? And he says a similar thing in the first part of 10, but remember that passage in Romans 9 where Paul says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people those of my own race, the people of Israel. Those are the tears. That's what animates him. Are you connecting with it? Inside, somewhere deep in Paul's will, somewhere deep in his affections, somewhere deep in his set of desires, having been converted on the road to Damascus, he now sees a different shape of his life. He sees a different trajectory. He sees a different path. This has captivated his whole being such that he now actually thinks of himself as nothing, like the exact opposite of what we tend to think of as freedom, all about myself. He thinks of himself as nothing in the, in the same way Christ filled up his sufferings with death, even death on a cross. Paul says, I could wish myself cursed and cut off from Christ. See, here's the way it works. Here's how this matters to you. Here's how this isn't just philosophy and intellectual history. This is why it matters to you. Matters to your friendships, to your family, to your workplace, to your neighbors, to your hobbies. Here's why. One way of looking at freedom turns everyone into my competitor. 
It turns everyone into my enemy who might potentially hinder my freedom. And thus I must fight them for the space to be myself. And then increasingly human beings isolate. And now of course the ability to isolate is being driven by technology, which makes it even harder. And so as I fight others for my space and I isolate, I then, to be, I then become imprisoned in this kind of self-protected place. But the Jesus way, the Jesus truth, the Jesus life says something very different. It says that I, as I follow him, I'm then free to live with the good of the other in mind and to love my neighbor, which is the greatest form of freedom. Jesus way makes me free to live with the good of other in mind, to love my neighbor, even to love my enemy. And man, to love your enemy, there is no greater emotional, intellectual, spiritual, relational freedom. Can you imagine how free one has to be to genuinely love their neighbor and their enemy? So the vision I think we find at the heart of this letter is something like freed to surrender. Or I think what Graham's thinking about in his book, Bound to be Free, is something like being bound to Christ to be free and to have a freedom that's always oriented towards something. I don't think it's a true freedom if it's, if it's not oriented towards something outside of us. And of course, in our case, God and his purposes, it's a freedom for the sake of others. And I think to live in other way is not freedom. It's actually dehumanizing self-destruction. All right, just think of that, that shrunkenness that happens to a human person, the isolation that happens, the fear that people live in. They live in fear of others. If you ask, why can't I love my neighbor or my enemy? Because I fear them. Well, why do you fear them? Because I assume they might do me harm. Well, what's the harm you might assume? Well, they might somehow shrink my personal space and my ability to be free. And following that track is a track of dehumanizing self-destruction, I would suggest. I like... In conclusion here, uh, one of the way, the, way uh, the message gets this notion, I forget which verse it is here, but I think it's maybe verse 20 or 21, where Paul says, I know there are many out there taking other paths, lots of them out there taking other goals, trying to get you to go along with them. Meaning, you know, like they have their mindset on other things, not their mindset on Christ. They have their mindset on a different vision of freedom. But the last thing I'd want you to think about this morning is this. What if alignment to God's purposes in humanity and being pliable in the potter's hand, what if that's the truest form of freedom and thus the best sort of human happiness and contentment? What if not fighting the hand, but being pliable in the potter's hand is the best way to have freedom and the best source of true contentment? What if freedom lies not in a constructed self, but in the discovering of creatureliness, of being created in the image of God in the potter's hand for his purposes? Well, in the Epiphany season, you know, we've been doing these in quotes or in italics altar calls of asking ourselves, having seen the revelation of Christ in Philippians, what we might actually think about it. So in our time this morning of response, Thinking of the vision that we've seen these last few weeks in chapters two and three, this vision of the self-emptying of Christ, how Paul imitated it, asked us to mimic it. I wonder if we could ask ourselves this morning, do we desire obedience and imitation? Or do we have stronger desires for something else? 
Do we desire obedience and imitation or do we have stronger desires for something else? And maybe the repentance that that calls for this morning would be the turning yourself in the direction of having the same mindset as Jesus.